a series that kind of leads us right up to Easter. What we're doing is we're spending seven weeks in the Gospel of John. And what we're focusing on, because there's 21 chapters, what we're going to focus on are the seven miracles or the seven signs that Jesus accomplished while he was here on the earth. You see, the cool thing about John is, as I said last week and the week before, is that we know exactly why John wrote this gospel. All right, He wasn't looking to uh, become part of some book club back in the first century. All right, He didn't want to start a blog and make some money off it with all the ads on the side. It was nothing like that. You see, he wrote this gospel for a purpose. According to John chapter 20, uh, verse 30, 30 and 31, here's his thesis. Here's his purpose for writing. He said, now Jesus did many other signs than these seven. All right, He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these seven are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. So the reason, the purpose that John writes this gospel is not to give an exhaustive account of Jesus' life, but simply to do this, to show by seven signs, seven miracles, that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And that if you would believe in Him, you would put your faith and trust in Him and Him alone, you will have life in His name, eternal life. So what I want to do in these next few weeks is just share with you of each of these seven miracles, these seven signs, that two things are being accomplished here. Number one, each of these shine, these signs show everyone who reads... That Jesus truly is God. Because no one else could do these signs unless they were God. And secondly, Jesus, not only is he this great God who's out there and almighty and powerful, he's also a God who is right here with us. He understands what we're going through. He understands what we're struggling and suffering with. And so Jesus enters into our struggle He enters into our lives and he does miracles in our lives to show us that he understands, that he is with us as well as he is God of all. And so with that said, what I want to do today is talk about a few undeniable proofs of Jesus's divinity, some undeniable proofs of Jesus's divinity. All right, as we go through this chapter, hopefully you're going to see clearly what we're talking about here. All right, uh, undeniable proof number one of Jesus' divinity is this. Jesus displays the actions of God. Jesus does things, as I said earlier, that only God can do. This is awesome. This is such a great uh, defining factor as to you're asking yourself, who really is God and is Jesus the one? Look in John chapter 5, verse 1 through 9. We're going through this awesome story. Uh, and this is the third sign that Jesus uh, does in the book of John. In John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And after this, because if you look in chapter 4, we covered that last week. So right after he does this one miracle, all right, and he heals a nobleman's son, it says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. And so Jesus went up to feast. All right, He went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. All right, You will be quizzed afterwards, so write that down. How many colonnades? Not really, I won't quiz you on that. But, okay, so there were five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids. Some were blind, lame, and paralyzed. How many were there? Mm -hmm. What does it say? A lot. Multitudes, right? One man was there who had been an an invalid for 38 years. Now, this is kind of a big deal because the life expectancy back then, they didn't have the medicines and all the different tools and the, the, the staffing and hospitals that we have today. So normal lifespan back then was like in your 40s, 50s, and if you're lucky, 60s. All right, So 38 years, this man uh, was invalid. And let's read on. When Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, Do you want to be healed? 
Odd question, isn't it? So the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another person steps down before me. You see, what happens is in verse 4, uh, some of your Bibles have this and some of them, long story short, there are some older manuscripts that don't have verse 4. So if you're thinking to yourself, how do I know I've got the true word? Listen, you got the true word of God with you. On those passages that people are like, is this supposed to be in the Bible or is this a scribe's note? Guess what? If you look in your Bible to the bottom, it has the verse there. Okay, so we're good. All right, the, the, the verse is in there. But here's what verse 4 says. There is a tradition that an angel would come down at certain seasons, certain times, and the angel would touch the water. Now, the first person who goes into this water after the angel touched it, you'd be healed. So it was like a miracle, like a divine blessing. Wow. And so now he's, Jesus asked him, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be healed? And he says, and I got no one to help me get into the pool. Every time the water stirs up, I, as I'm going, someone beats me to the water. What this tells me and what this tells all of us reading is this. This man had a sickness that only God could heal. This man had a sickness that only God can heal. And here's what Jesus says. Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Did you just catch what happened? Only God could have done that, and God said, get up. That's pretty amazing. But before we go there, let's take a step back and look at what's going on in this man's life. All right, Let, let's, let's allow ourselves to truly know that God understands where we're at. This man had no help. 38 years he was at this pool. 38 years. I wonder how many times he saw people healed from these waters. He had no help. He was alone. Without help, he could never get what he desired. Never could. And because he had no help, guess what else? He was running out of hope. Because his situation, let's be honest, is impossible. If he doesn't get help, he could never get to where he needs to go. Then he was surrounded by people with no compassion. Think about this for a moment. Now, people around him probably said, oh, what a sweet man. I wish that he could get healed. But listen, when the time came, people were like, you know, hey, you know, I know you've been here a whole lot longer than me, but, you know, I got, I got things I need to do. And they walk over and they're healed. So we may say the right things. We, we may sound compassionate. But you know what compassion is? Compassion is love and action. And this man was getting no compassion from the multitudes. No assistance. Basically, everything in this world was against him. How many of you uh, can understand that? Everything was against him. It was him. An invalid. Now, more than likely, he could not walk. He was an invalid. It was him against the world. And guess what? Him versus the world. Let me say it this way. You versus the world. You will always lose. You will always lose. The world is too big a place for you to overpower. It's too nasty a place for you to overcome. It's too tempting a place for you to say no to. The world is bigger than you think. This is rock bottom. Let me ask you a question. What would you do in this situation? Would you, would you give up? Would you throw in the towel? Would you just stay at home and sulk? <clears throat> Is that what you do? What did this man do, though? That's interesting. He said, while I am going to this pool, meaning that this man, although it seemed he had no hope, he still kept trying, right? He still kept trying to no avail. How many of us are in that situation? 
Some of us may have given up. And you're just going through the motions right now. And you have no hope in your heart and mind. I'm so glad you're here today. Some of you, though, have just half an ounce of hope left. Everything else, the world's against you and everything. But you know what? You're still here. You're still trying to figure it out. You're still trying to, what is that one thing that I am not doing right? Okay, what is that one thing that I need to personally do? What is it I need to do with my job? What is it I need to do with my family? What is it I need to do in my personal life? And so you're just going to keep on trying. And I'm here to tell you, you by yourself, the world is too big for you alone. You will not win, no matter how hard you try. So I commend you for the energy and effort. But I warn you with truth. You can't do this alone. So why are you here today? We know why the man was at the pool. Hoping beyond hope that something would happen. Why are you here today? What condition are you dealing with at this very moment that renders you mobile? Is it an illness? Is it your finances? Is it a strained relationship? Is it loneliness? Is it alcoholism? Is it substance abuse? Is it lust? Is it an abusive past? These conditions are real. They're hard. But here's the question. Have you lost hope? Look what the next verse says in, in, five, in 6 and 7. Here's what it says. When Jesus saw this man lying there, the scripture says he knew something about him. He knew that he had already been there a long time. So what this tells us is Jesus, in Jesus' mind, he knows everything. He knew that this man had been there a very long time. You know what's encouraging about this? God knows your condition. God knows. You may be calling up to heaven day after day and saying, God, do you understand what I'm going through? Do you understand the hole that I am in? Do you understand these things? Do you understand the enemy that is, that is coming against me? Well, what we have here is proof that God knows our condition. God knew it. He knew it for a long time. He knew the pain. He knew the loneliness. He knew the desperation. And according to verse 14, which we haven't gotten to yet, Jesus also knew the man's sin. He knows our sin, and he still came to him. Do you get that? He knows everything about you. Your strengths, your weaknesses, your fears, your joys, your victories, and your defeats. And he still comes. You see broken beyond repair. You see, what does he see? Not only does he know your condition, he also knows your real need. He knows your real need. You see, this man had a physical condition that rendered him immobile. But Jesus also knew, and that's why I believe he asked the question. He said, uh, do you want to be healed? Do you want to? That's an odd question to ask, right? Someone lying there, invalid, probably can't walk. Maybe his arms can't move and he just can't get to where he needs to go. And someone walks to mind and says, hey, do you want to be healed? That's an odd question. To which the, the man answers like a, a crotchety man. And, I can't. I want to. I can't. See, Jesus knew a deeper issue than just his physical immobility. You see, this man had a deeper issue. He needed to know God personally. He needed a healing that was beyond what his feet could or could not do. And that's why Jesus asked him the question, do you want to be healed? And so the reason that Jesus heals this man, obviously to meet a need, to, under, to know that we understand where he's at, 
where we're at today. But Jesus also healed this man so that he and others could know who Jesus was. The very Son of God. So that they would believe in Him. More on that later. Which brings us to another thing. God not only knows our condition and knows our need, but He also meets our real need. He meets our real need. Listen, it's not on the slide there, but in Matthew chapter 9, oh, there is a powerful passage, a great story. Jesus is teaching in a house. Okay, and while he's teaching in the house, the house is full to overflowing. All right, there were people all over the place, people probably in the windows peeking in. Well, there was this man who could not walk, but he had some friends. A little different story. He had friends. The friends went up to the roof. They cut a hole in the roof. That's what's going to happen if you invite Jesus in your house, okay? Things are going to get messy, okay? But listen, they cut a hole in the roof. They let down this man who couldn't walk, this paraplegic. And here's what Jesus said. Wow, that's some awesome faith. Your sins are forgiven. Think about this for a moment. Jesus just told this man who was an invalid, he said, your sins are forgiven. To which everyone in the room is like, whoa, wait a minute. Only God can forgive sins. And here's what Jesus said. To prove to you that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, I'm going to do something that only God can do. Take up your mat, stand up, and walk. And the man did that. What that just proved was this. Jesus was God. If he he has the ability to make lame men walk, he has the ability to forgive sins. The proof of that is the miracle. So there we are. God, his actions speak loudly. Number two, I said there's there's a couple of things we want to get to when we want to understand, is Jesus truly God? Point number two is this. Not only does he do the actions of God, he also speaks the words of God. You see, have you ever come to find out that words can get you into trouble? Has anybody ever said something, even though it was true and you got in trouble for it? All right. Absolutely. 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 We, we, we understand that that happens. Well, guess what? Jesus is not exempt from that rule. All right? Sometimes speaking the truth will get you into trouble. And God himself seems to get in trouble for speaking the truth. All right? So here's some words that Jesus proclaims. And when he proclaims this, it shows without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is saying, I'm God. All right? If you go to, if we're in uh, chapter 5, go to verse 19. I don't have time to cover everything in this chapter. There's so much. There's three sermons here. But look at verse 19. There were some people that did not like the way Jesus was healing because he was doing it on the Sabbath. And so they were upset. They were frustrated and wanted to question him. So in verse 19, listen to this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Here it comes. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Listen, Jesus does the works of God. Whatever the Father does, He does. Okay, They're in absolute unity. So Jesus, proving by His very own words, He says, I do the works of God. What do you think of me now? Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son, and the Father shows Him all that he himself is doing and greater works will these will he show him so that you may marvel so not only does jesus do the works of god jesus knows the plans of god jesus is in direct counsel with the father what do you think of jesus now look at verse 21 for as the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son Gives life to whom he will. Jesus has the power to give life. What do you think of Jesus now? He has proven by his works that he can only do, that he does what only God can do. Now his works are saying the same thing. You know, there are people that are saying, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, wrong. He's claiming it right now. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to who? The Son. So Jesus has the authority to judge. To pardon and to punish. To condemn and to set free. 
Jesus has the power to do that. What do you think of Jesus now? Verse 23, he says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Equality in honor. Equality in glory. In praise. He says whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is making an emphatic statement that he is to receive the same honor as God the Father. According to his works and his words, what do you think of Jesus now? What would the Jews think? Do you think they appreciated those words? Well, in John uh, 5, 18, listen to what they say. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. All right. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, I didn't just pull that out of a hat, did I? I didn't say, let's twist these verses to make it sound like something I wanted to say. I just gave you God's word. Everything that we talked about, Jesus was emphatically saying, he is God. Even the first audience that heard them knew that. And that's why they wanted to kill him. I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to say it a couple of times today. And here we go. It is not blasphemy. You know what blasphemy is? is saying something about God that isn't true. Specifically about yourself towards him. All right. So people thought he was blaspheming because he was saying that he was equal with God. But listen to this. It is not blasphemy to say you are God if in fact you are God. All right. And Jesus proved it by his actions and his words. The divinity of Jesus is true whether you choose to believe it or not. Point number three. Think about that. Jesus displayed his actions that only God can do. He spoke the words of God. And now reliable witnesses declare that Jesus is God. You see, in the Old Testament, in order for something to be proven true or false in court, you needed the reliability of someone else's testimony. As a matter of fact, not even one would work. He says you need to have two or more witnesses to prove that what you are saying is true. Now listen, Jesus did not need to prove himself to us. He didn't have to. But in his grace, he knows where we're at. He knows what we need. So in the very grace of God, he shows us three witnesses. Three witnesses that prove he is who he says he is. If you're in John 5, go to verse 32. John 5, 32. John gives us three reliable witnesses. In John 5, 32, it says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And so did the audience. Because who he's about to say is someone they all knew very well. And they highly respected this man. You sent to John. You all went to John to hear his words because you knew that he was speaking the words of God. Jesus doesn't even have to argue this point. He says, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things for a reason. So that you may be saved. Talk about the heart of God and the stooping himself down in order to bring witnesses. He didn't have to do this, but he does it so that we could understand him. So that we would be saved. It said that John was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Let me stop there. Do you see what has taken place? Jesus just said, you want proof? You want a witness that that I am who I say I am? You were there to hear his words, right? You were there to to hear him preach, to preach hard stuff and to preach great stuff and everything in between. You heard him preach. Some of you were probably even there when I walked into the water. And John specifically said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you weren't there that day, you may have been there the next day when he said the same thing about me. You read that in John chapter 1, by the way. You read that in Matthew chapter 3. 
All right, you see that in Mark chapter 1. It's, it's all over Scripture. That John, the one that they, if any man, matter of fact, he was considered the greatest Old Testament prophet. And you're thinking, well, his book is written in the New Testament. Well, the New Covenant happened after Jesus died. But you see the point? They revered John. And he used that to prove he's Jesus. But he's got a greater testimony than that. Listen to what he says uh, in the next passage. He says, you were, uh, excuse me, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. To which Jesus can say, how many of you were there that day when John attested to who I was? If you were there, you saw him baptize me. And if you saw him baptize me, you heard the voice from the Father who said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So now you got John saying, he is the Messiah. He is the son of God. And now you have God the Father himself speaking the truth about who he was. Folks, that's more than enough witness, all right? But then he goes back to our point number one. He says, if you don't even believe that, believe the works that I did. You see that in that last verse? He says, uh, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So his, his works are evidence that he is God. So three reliable witnesses. He didn't need any. But the Old Testament said, give us two. And he gave him three. Again, it is not blasphemy. To say you are God if in fact you are God. And Jesus proved it now by his actions, by his words, and by the witnesses. His divinity is true whether you choose to believe it or not. So now, now that we've got these, these uh, definitive proofs that Jesus is the Son of God, the next question is the most obvious. What are you going to do about it? What response are you going to give to Jesus? There's four responses we can give as we close. Four responses that you can give. Number one, you can reject his actions, his words, and his witness. We just, we just laid that out in John chapter 5. That he has words, he has actions, and he has witnesses to prove that he is the Son of God. And you and I can choose to reject that. Look at John five sixteen through 18. It says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Why? Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was doing them on a day that they didn't approve of. They had their box, okay? They had their, uh, their idea of what is right and wrong. And Jesus was not fitting into their mold. So they didn't like him for that. But Jesus answered, look at this answer, it's so cool. But Jesus answered and says, my father... Is working until now. And I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not just breaking the Sabbath. But he was calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. Here's what has taken place here. They said we don't like you because you're, you're healing on the Sabbath. That's, that's, that's not good. We don't like that about you. And he said. Uh, Does the father work on the Sabbath? Here's a question for you. Does the Father work on the Sabbath? To which some of you are going right to Genesis 1 and 2, aren't you? Well, it says that he rested. You know what would happen if God fully rested? We would all disintegrate. Because it says that he sustains us. All of his creation is together because of the word of his power. God never really takes a break. To which Jesus said, I and the Father are one. What he does, I do. So he just said, uh, yeah, Sabbath is a, is a day of rest. Yeah, because y'all need it and everything. But my dad's at work today and so am I. To which they got mad because he just said he's God, right? Listen, but here's the, here's the heartbreaking part of this whole thing. Remember, we're talking about rejecting actions, words, and witnesses. The focus of the Jews... 
was on the broken law. And I say broken, not God's law. We'll talk about that on the next point. The focus of the Jews was on, was on the broken law, not the miracle of healing. Let that sink in. Here's what just happened. They missed him. It was right in front of them. The evidence that God was in their midst. And they missed him because of their tradition. Do we miss Jesus because he's not doing what we think he should? He's not doing it your or my way. The focus of the Jews was on the broken law, not the miracle of healing. And what's even sadder than that is that the focus of the Jews is on learning the scriptures, okay? To be biblically literate, okay? To know all the decrees, all the commands. The focus was on the knowledge of scriptures instead of the God of the scriptures. We see that in verse 38 through 40. Look at verse 38 through 40. Jesus said, And you do not have his word abiding in you. Stop there. They had the Bible in them, right? These were the teachers of the law. They had the Bible in them. What does Jesus mean here when he says that? It means that they have words in them. They don't have the word in him, in them. Listen to what it says. And you do not have his word abiding in you, resting in you, meditating and marinating in you. You, for you do not believe the one who he sent. You search the scriptures. Okay. All of it. You search it because you think that in them, just knowing them, that you'll have eternal life. And these scriptures, it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's like our children learning John 3.16. And they know that verse forward, backward. They can quote it in Greek if, they, if, you, if you teach them that. But wouldn't it be sad for them to go their whole life memorizing John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes or trusts in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then you ask them, what does it mean to go to heaven? They're like, well, I hope you do good works. Wouldn't that be sad? They have a word in them, but they don't have the word in them. And so they were searching, what is it I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And the scripture says to believe and trust in his son. And they refused to do that. You can choose that. You can choose to reject his actions, his words, and his witnesses. That's something that you can choose to do. Here's another thing very similar that you can choose to do. You can choose your religious systems or practices over Jesus. Did you catch that? Awesome. Did you catch that? You can choose your religious systems and practices over Jesus. Is your faith in Jesus... Or is it in your religion? Is it in your tradition? Keep in mind, in this very passage, the rule that Jesus broke is not in the Bible. The rule that they broke was not in the Bible. God gave them the gift of Sabbath. And on that Sabbath, you were not to work. Well, the Jews said, you know what? In order to not break God's law, we're going to create our own law. And then they had 20 or 30 different laws to protect them from the Sabbath. And one of them laws involved something kind of like picking up your mat because that's work. How, how senseless that would be. How crazy that would be. We, we have people who went to Israel not too long ago. And on the Sabbath, they weren't allowed to push an elevator button because that's considered work. See how, how insane that was? That wasn't in the Bible. That was man's law. And man puts these laws into play and saying, you better follow them or else you're not in favor with God. So 
think about this. The Son of God who created the Sabbath law was being accused of breaking a law of man. And they thought that more important than following the Son of God who was right in front of them. Jesus established the law. Men, women, we hijack the law. We take it into ourselves, do with it what we want, and we expect everybody to follow our new rules, and we call it religion. The Jews judge Jesus on their standard instead of God's. Let me ask you, do you do this as well? Do you do this as well? Some of us, we may get frustrated at other churches because they worship on uh, maybe, maybe Monday or Saturday night. Oh, no, no. The prescribed way to worship is on Sunday morning between 9 and 11.59. Preacher, hurry up. Have we boxed in when, are you, when you're to worship? There are churches that have done that. My wife invited someone to small group. And you know what the answer to the young man who's, I think, just got married... Here's what his response was. Oh, I can't go to a house to study the Bible. No, our church says that the Bible can only be studied in the church building. That, that's crazy, but it's sad. That means that all the ministry has to be done by ministers, by the paid staff. What does that do to the, the church? What does that do to the kingdom? What does that do to the community? Some of us feel that only a certain type of clothing is acceptable on Sunday morning. Anything other than that standard, you're obviously far from God. Many of us focus on the externals over the heart. I'll give you an example of that. Both sides to this. Alcohol. Ooh, tough subject. Preacher, now you're meddling. Those that hold to their own law, and, and they have scriptures to back it up too. If you, if you drink alcohol, you're lost. If you drink alcohol, you're lost. If you don't drink alcohol, then that's a sign you're a Christian. Is it based on your love for Christ, or is it based on your own Rules that you have created so that you can have a great litmus test or standard of what good and bad is. Because when you do that, you're going to judge people by a different standard that Jesus did. Let's go to the other route, okay? Those that abuse it, okay? They're like, listen, the Bible says all things are permissible. So I'm going to drink alcohol whenever I want. I don't want anybody telling me any other way. Who's the Lord of your life there? It's not Jesus because you just said, I'm going to do it my way. Now you're waiting for an answer, right? <laughs> Here's the answer. Know Jesus. Know Him. And the way you do that is through His Word. But His Word is a means to an end. This word, the goal of this word is for you to know God, not just to know facts. When you know God, then he'll tell you what is good and what's acceptable. And what he has done in my life is, listen, I've got too much alcoholism in my family. And so when, when, I, when I look towards God on this, God has given me at least a little bit of wisdom to say, get away from that. There's, it, may be, it may be permissible, but it is not profitable for me. So I personally... I personally stay away from that. Now, have I, have I made mistakes? I have. I have. I, I was younger, even, even in my adult life. I, I, I'm a sinful, wicked person. Let me just say it that way. I do the very things that God tells me not to do. But listen, crossing the line, what is Jesus telling you? Not what preachers are telling you. Okay, not what, what famous Authors tell you, what does Jesus tell you? That needs to be the goal of your life is to know Christ. To know Christ. But some of us are so indoctrinated in our own beliefs that, listen, even if God himself 
were to come down and teach us truth, we would reject it over our own truth. Proof of that is this passage right here. Proof of that, I'm sure this happens in small group. When someone brings truth to the table and it rubs you wrong, you got to ask yourself, is this of God? Or is this of flesh? That's why we have rules in small group. We know that life is going to get messy. We know that. So we established from the beginning, what we want to do is we want to give you love and we want to give you Jesus. Life is messy, isn't it? Especially when we get to know each other. Good, bad, and indifferent. Number three. Here's another way you could respond to Jesus. How about criticizing the Almighty? That's a great idea, huh? Criticize the Almighty. Some of you may read this passage later on and three questions may pop into your head. Number one, wait a minute. Jesus walked into Solomon's you know, area and, and there was a pool there. And it says, how many people were, were around the pool? A lot, right? Multitudes were around there. And Jesus healed one. Well, why didn't he heal the multitude? Why didn't, why didn't, why didn't God do that? Or how about this one? Jesus, why didn't you wait another day? Wouldn't that have been easier for the Jews if you just waited till Sunday to heal instead of on the Sabbath? You wouldn't have had all those problems. Yeah, how about asking the invalid? Hey, would you mind being invalid one more day? No one would say, sure. They'd say, heal me now. Here's another question. Because Jesus uses some harsh language in this, in this passage. Why would Jesus use harsh language when trying to win people to a loving God? Uh oh. You hear that? Here's my answer to those questions God's word proclaims that God does all things good and right. He does. He does all things good and right. Look at James 1. He does all things good and right. He will always do what is glorious for his name and what is ultimately best. For his people. We see that throughout scripture. That those two truths are evident. And he will always do. What is glorious for his name. And good. Ultimate eternal good for us. Even if we don't have the capacity. Or the choice to understand. You can balk or you can reject. Or you can be like the prophet Isaiah who said in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, Folks, my thoughts are not his thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For some reason, in the great scheme and plan of God, it was to be greatest glory for him to walk in the midst of the multitude and to heal that one person. I don't understand it. I do not get it. For in this very room, we're going to see some people healed of terminal diseases. And we're also going to see some people pass away from simple things. I don't have the capacity to understand the mind of God. But what I do know is that everything he does is good and right. There is no power stronger than him. And I am called to rest and to trust in his sovereignty. But you can choose to criticize the Almighty. And number four, finally, you can choose to get rid of that negativity and receive from Jesus what you cannot receive without him. You could receive something from Jesus that you cannot receive without him. Remember the crazy question that Jesus asked the man at the beginning? Remember? Jesus went up to him and said, Jesus knew he had been sick for 38 years. And Jesus goes to the man and says, do you want to be healed? That's a crazy question, right? But look at John 5.14. Look at John 5.14. 
You see, what happened is Jesus healed this man. And then Jesus went away. And the guy picked up his mat and walked. And while he was walking, some Jews stopped him and said, Oh, you're breaking the law. Can't believe you're walking, but you're breaking the law. And he says, well, there was a man who healed me. And he told me to to take up my mat and go home. Who was he? I, I, I don't know. The man left. And then Jesus came back. And here's that conversation. Listen to this. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you're well. Sin no more. Meaning that Jesus knew him. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now we're starting to understand why Jesus went to the one. See this? Jesus went to the one for a greater purpose than you and I could understand. Anthony Silvaggio, who wrote an awesome book about these signs, he says this, The man's life-threatening ailment was not his physical disability, but the terminal illness of being a fallen sinner. The sign of physical healing signifies the greater work of Jesus in making us spiritually well. How can we know that Jesus forgives us because of what he does with the miracles? If he can do that, then he can do this. All right. He says, like the lame man, all unbelievers are unable to walk with God. They cannot reach out for healing. For they are utterly lame before God. The unbeliever's only hope is to be made well in the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question that Jesus gives the unbeliever here is the same question that he asked of the lame man earlier. Do you want to be healed? So I ask you that question this morning. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be cleansed? Do you want to know God personally? I'm not asking if you want to be a Baptist. Okay? I'm not asking if you want to be religious. I'm asking, do you want to know the Son of God personally? From what I believe in Scripture, Jesus has the awesome capacity because we cannot come to Him. We're unable to. We're lame and we're spiritually invalid. Jesus has the awesome desire and will to come to you. And if that is true, and he's here this morning, if you sense that Jesus, the Son of God, is calling you to be his, do not turn away. Do not reject. Do not criticize Do not put him in a box and say, I'll come to you, but I'll come to you my way. No. He is sovereign God. He has done everything possible for you to come to him. Now you need to come to him his way by faith and trust in his son who died on a cross in your place for you alone. And for everyone, not just alone, for everyone who would believe in him. So I'm using these final words of Jesus To be our close. In John chapter 5 verse 24 to 29. This is the plea of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The plea of Jesus is to come to him. 
Do you want to be made whole? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your clear word. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is in this place going from from seat to seat, drawing people to yourself. God, may we respond. God, I pray for those who have already put their faith and trust in Jesus, the saving faith. God, that they would continue to trust that you are almighty. Things are going to happen in this world that we do not understand. And God, we get that because our kids, we do good things for our kids, but they don't understand why we do that. They don't understand why we give them, uh, take them to the doctor to get shots. To them, it seems absolutely horrible, but we know it's for their greater good. Help us to trust that you are almighty, that everything you do is for your glory and our ultimate eternal good. God, help us to remember as believers that he knows, he knows where we're at. And help us to remember that that you are at work even though we don't see you. God, help us to focus on Jesus, the God of the scriptures. May every time we get into the word, may we seek the God of the word. And God, I pray for those who are struggling in their belief. I pray for those who came today who don't know you as Savior and Lord. Help them to hear you calling them this morning. Help them to be honest with you, God, about their sin and about their desperate need for you. God, be there with them right now to make them whole this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.